Welcome back to the Military Museums. Uh, my guest today is Walter Brooks. How you doing, Walter? Oh, I'm. Uh, I made it. You <laughs> so made that's it. The important part. Yeah, we've been trying to set this up for a little bit. Yes. And I'm glad you could uh, make it onto the show on your coffee break, as you say. Mm. A little bit of a mobile coffee break. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so Walter, when we get started here, I just want to. Could you describe to me what it is you do here? A little bit of everything, actually. Okay, let's start with your official title. Well, my official title is uh, Collections Assistant or Collections Manager for the Army Museum of Alberta in the Military Museums in Calgary, Alberta. All right. Uh, What that actually entails is I deal with the artifact collections, so anything that isn't basically paper. Okay. And there's a couple of areas where... uh, Artifact and um, doc. Um, I'm just trying to think of the doc. The term for it, archival information. Uh, there's a bit of overlap. Maps are one that's like, well, maybe it's actually paper and it's uh, archival, or maybe it's actually an artifact. Uh, the only way that we can work out the difference between the two is, has somebody marked it up? Is it a First World War? Uh, map that has the lines of the various divisions or units or whatever uh, marked on it uh, and was it used at the time well then that kind of makes it uh, artifact as opposed to but it could be uh, archival so it's one of those th- situations where does it go to archives does it go to artifacts does it go to the main collections and your part of your job is deciding that Kind of, yeah. Some of the stuff it's patently obvious, like if it's a helmet, obviously that's an artifact. If it's, uh, say, somebody's letter home, yeah, then that would be archival. Okay. Okay. So when you first started here, can we go back then? Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> back into the dark recesses of the early... Yeah, I'd just yes. like to talk about what got you here in the first place. I started out as a volunteer uh, front-end greeter, and then that was actually sort of between jobs. And then I had a job that lasted about two years, and I always said that I regretted actually taking that job because I had more, it was better here than it was actually doing that particular job. But again, when I left that particular job, I came back, and I actually was working with the education department. What were you doing with the education department? Uh, I was doing the artifact handling. Oh, yeah. So we the, still do that today. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff that actually uh, you guys had for um, the artifact handling were things that I actually made or I was involved in making it. We had a layout on a board of uh, modern rations, and then I actually replicated uh, the Second World War uh, type rations. Uh, and we still have that, actually, because... It's um, yes, we do. We take it to schools. Yeah, it was uh, it was actually rather amusing because I remember one of our um, volunteers who's now passed on. But uh, as I was describing it to her, uh, all the biscuits were made out of wood, and she said, "Well, they probably taste about the same as the actual issue ones from the Second World War," which I thought always thought was rather amusing. Um, She's but, probably yeah, right. And it's true, yeah. Um, <laughs> although it, it was interesting actually because that was one of the things that I did. Um, early on uh, was with artifact handling because we needed to compare and contrast the modern rations as opposed to the ones from the Second World War. Um, part, it worked out well for me because at that time, the Poppy Fund actually were 
helping to contribute to the financing for programs, school programs. So they were paying a stipend to anybody who was a volunteer. Things have changed, but uh, so that actually helped me out because I did have a part-time job, but then I was in here usually two days a week. Well, when they changed the education program, uh, that meant that they didn't need me uh, quite as often. And of course, the actual funding was only for the time frame of remembrance, uh, school trips, that sort of stuff. So I eventually started working with the guy who was the volunteer uh, collections assistant or collections manager uh, for the Army. Well, yeah, for the Army Museum. It that went through a name change. It was originally called the Alberta Gallery. And right. it, the idea was to deal with uh, Canadian military in Alberta in the context of Edmonton and Calgary and Medicine Hat and it expanded to then become the Army Museum of Alberta which had a much larger mandate and dealt with a much larger time frame and number of different units. Uh, we deal with what's referred to as the purple trades, so all of the support trades. Okay. So things like what is now logistics used to be uh, Ordnance Corps uh, transport, uh, there's a whole bunch of different permutations and they just kind of collapse them into one overarching unit. Uh, of course, Signals is another one, Canadian Women's Army Corps, uh, Medical Corps. So, and, and the reason for them being called Purple Trades has to do with the color of the um, gorget or the markings for the officers on their collars, the underlying color as opposed to the actual badges. Right. So you started here as a volunteer. Yeah. And you clearly have a great deal of knowledge, like it's a um, seeming like a bottomless well of knowledge that you can just draw from. You can say words like gorget, which I have not heard until we just sat down and you just said it to me just now. So what I want to know mostly is what made you feel so very much very compelled to keep coming back here what got you here in the first place where does this uh knowledge come from it was one of these things that developed gradually through my life i mean i always had an interest in history and you know kids go through the phases of you know you're into dinosaurs well i was into dinosaurs but i quickly went into being more interested in knights in shining armor so as, as you go through life, you pick up little bits of information. Uh, I had great uncles that served in the, in the Second World War. Uh, I had a great uncle on the other side of the family who was actually killed towards the end of the First World War. Um, so eventually it got to the point where some, like I, I knew people, I have known people who served in the Second World War. And some of the people that I... I knew that served in the Second World War, I didn't even realize had. And one of the stranger connections is that in the Calgary Highlanders Gallery, they uh, have a Sergeant Crocker uh, display. I think, I'm, hopefully I've got that correct. Uh, and the great irony of that is that when I was, say, two, three years old, when we used to take our grain to um, Carstairs, I believe it was, to the, gra uh, to the grain elevator, that particular guy was the grain man there. So I knew some of these people actually 
and I didn't even realize it. Uh, we've had several of our volunteers, the one that uh, I made the comment about, the biscuits tasting probably the same made out of wood as they would in reality. She was one of our CWAC veterans. Uh, we had uh, another fellow who was a um, volunteer for the uh, Calgary Highlanders mm -hmm. who, when I knew him, you know, he was, a, he was an elderly gentleman. But one day, one of the fellows uh, who works in one of the other museums turned around and dug out the citation that he for the medal that he had been awarded and reading that and going wait a minute you're reading what this this fella did during when he was a, effectively a teenager a young man and then you're looking at the fella years later it's like are we even looking at the same person but yes you are and that's one of those things that is interesting about history is being able to well meet the people but then not realize who you're actually meeting uh it's like wow i didn't know that or standing somewhere i mean like you read about the stuff in books but when you're actually sort of physically standing on say the battlefield of culloden and looking at the way that pretty much the topography would have looked approximately at the time 200 years ago when the battle was fought it's like okay this has actually made it fairly real and that's probably why, uh, what kept, kept me coming back. A, we had some people that you are very down to earth, but then when you sort of learn about what they did, it's like, wow, that's not something that I would have expected necessarily. Um, and then the, the great irony is that they get to know you. Uh, we had one of, our, one of the fellows who I knew, um, he, he made a stipulation in his will that when they had his wake, and they, were, they had his wake effectively here at the museum, that he would buy um, everybody a drink, which seems to be a fairly standard thing. I've, I've been to a couple of uh, other funerals uh, where the same thing has happened. And I thought, but he said, okay, it's got to be my favorite tipple. So it was like, okay, <laughs> I was like, well, it's kind of churlish because I knew that I knew the man and it was like, I'm not, you know, I, I might, if he's willing to buy me a drink, you know, I better not turn it down. However, as a direct result of that, he gave me a taste for very peaty scotch. Oh. And not inexpensive scotch. So it's yeah. like, ah, Rod, ah, you, oh, you sneaky, <laughs> ah, you sneaky bugger. Yeah. So. I, 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 but it, it's just that sort of thing. It's like you can read about it in books, but if you actually either meet somebody or go somewhere and see something, it makes it real. Yeah. Um, that's the one thing that my boss really likes to have is the actual article. Um, a helmet that come popping up out of the mud of, of Vimy. Yeah. Uh, however... We have an example of that. Uh, it's a M M16 Stahlheim uh, or coal scuttle thing, but it's neat. What's really neat is we actually have the capacity in our museum to take the one from Vimy, and we have an example in almost pristine condition and be able to say, see this? This popped up at Vimy. This is what it would have looked like originally. And I like that sort of compare and contrast thing. You can see the effects of the time and the geography of 
where it's been for the past hundred years. Yeah, it. We have another example in our collection that's it's really interesting. It's a very rusty uh, Erzitz German manufactured bayonet, and the scabbard's rusty. The uh, frog that attaches the scabbard to your belt uh, that is not in good shape. It's still there, but it's not in good shape being leather, and the actual metal handle is fairly heavily rusted. But when you actually grab the bayonet by the handle and pull it out, the only th- uh, it's almost in pristine condition, the blade, with oh. the exception of a thumbprint, which is one of those things that is cringeworthy for us, but it's like it is a hundred-year-old bayonet that is still just about as shiny as it was to start, except for this nice little etched thumbprint. Why is that cringeworthy? Um, the actual thumbprint, yeah, <laughs> rather, yeah. rather than the cringeworthy part. Um, it's people handle things. Uh, is this from like a, someone handling it improperly? I, I think so. Yes, yeah? yes. Okay. We, we we have other examples within the museum of there. There's. I was actually talking with somebody about this a couple of days ago, uh, probably last week. There's a, a pistol in the collection yeah. that was stored, had to have been stored in its holster for a very long time. But inevitably, everybody did exactly the same thing. They would open up the holster, they would reach in, they would grab the pistol by the uh, the grip, pull it out. Well, I did this one time. I was wearing gloves at the time. I reached in, I pulled it out. And then if you you hold it in your hand and you open your fingers, you can see where everybody else's fingers have acid etched into the... So it's actually faded and it looks like, you know, fingerprints, basically. Um, so it's, it's about care and handling. I mean, obviously, if you're going to have a teacup at home, you're going to pick it up by the handle. Well, we're not going to pick it up by the handle here because who knows how many hundreds of people have picked that up. Uh, and the last thing you want to do is be standing there holding the handle and have the cup smashed on yeah. the floor. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things. I mean, you'd, you'd go, oh, well, if it happened to you, it would be like, oh, well, you know, isn't that a shame? I'll just get another teacup. But it's like, no, no, no. That's especially important because that was the teacup, let's say, that uh, I'll use, I'll pick on the Patricias for, for a change. But no, 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 that was the one that Princess Patricia, uh, Lady Ramsay, drank out of at her wedding uh, you know, say, for example, at, at her wedding breakfast. It's like, okay, no, no, that is historically important. It's a teacup, but it's still historically important. And we can have the artifacts. The important thing is to have a story that goes with it, because otherwise it's just a teacup. When you separate the story from the object itself, that's where you start to go, okay, well, it's a teacup, but you don't have that link to the fact that it had a historical significance. Right, um, because if you think about it, you know, okay, great, it's a it's a Bic pen. I mean, you can go to virtually any store and buy a Bic pen. You can go to Staples. You could go to Seven Eleven. Mm. No, no, no. That happened to be the one that was actually tucked into the message pad of, you know, somebody like, um, well, anybody could. I mean, I could, I could mention like uh, Nicola Goddard. Right, and. Okay, it's a big pen, but it's now really important because that was the one that she actually was using. It's say. her yeah. big pen. Yeah. yeah, that's the that's the that's the point. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that's the point. Yeah. Um, so, really, for us, when we get uh, donations uh, and people bring in things, 
that's what we really need is a story. And unfortunately, as time goes by, the stories and the actual objects, objects themselves end up becoming dissipated, for want of a better term. And what are your feelings about that exactly? Because one of the things you just told me was what brought you to this place is that the history was still alive, was still being made. Now, we've unfortunately been going through a lot of losses here at the military museums from the Second World War mm -hmm. and Korea. And, I mean, the we only have so many veterans of these conflicts. And when they go, their stories essentially go mm -hmm. with them and those links go with them and we have to work that much harder to really find these stories so how does that affect your work um the best thing that can happen for us is that when people actually have a story a family story right um that they act that they you know hang on to it when it does get to the point where they no longer can actually be the custodians of it which does happen if they can pass it on to us, that's very helpful. Now, we do have a program of doing something similar to what we're doing right now, actually sitting down and talking with, with the veterans. Um, one of the things that ends up happening is that some of the most entertaining stories that you get from veterans are the ones that are not necessarily the most child-appropriate, shall we say? Publishable. Publishable, yes. <laughs> um, it's... It, it's one of those things that you don't really want to edit history as such, but it's nice. it would be better actually to have more information and then go, well, we're just really not going to play up that particular part of it um, than it would be to not have the information at all and say, well, we're not, we're not going to turn around. That's, that ends up becoming, in my mind, very Orwellian and a little too much like 1984. And it's better to have the off-color uh, stories uh, from the veterans at the time. Uh, a lot of problems that you run into is when somebody is telling you a story. I mean, veterans get together, used to get together uh, fairly frequently at the Legion, and yep. it's referred to as talking Legion or, you know, speaking Legion. And it's the whole, if you've been there, you don't need to talk about it. Although you do kind of need to talk about it because it's one of those ways of, of working through what you saw, what you did, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, less of a problem from the viewpoint of numbers uh, sort of in the last, say, 50 years because although Canada has been involved in peacekeeping operations and uh, Afghanistan, those have been fairly traumatic uh, for the individuals that were there. There just wasn't as many people involved in it. That's right. And the legions were a place where you could get together and if you started telling a story that was like yeah not so much that's off color but it's kind of questionable as to what was going on then there was a little less judgment i suppose in in the whole thing because there are things that are done that were done at the time for the right reasons but once you start to become the monday morning uh, quarterback it's like yeah, you had to be there in order to understand the context. It's, um, I, uh, I jacked my, uh, I remember distinctly doing this, I jacked my um, grade 12 social studies teacher over a, a very famous photograph from the Vietnam War. 
and I had just finished watching a documentary on it and the explanation behind exactly what was happening. And he actually said, well, okay, this works out to be the equivalent of war crime. And I went, okay, but let's put this into context because of, and then I proceeded to run through the whole explanation behind how the situation occurred. And then the photographer who took the photograph kind of went, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, it was the tipping point in, in that particular war. And it's, it's about context as much as anything else, too. That's, that's my own personal view on the subject. It's like, don't, you know, don't, don't second get, until you've marched somebody a, a certain distance in somebody's shoes, then you can't really judge them the same way. Within, you know, obviously there are differences. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, but it's like, you know, bear in mind, yes, it may be totally wrong, totally inappropriate. But if you understand, you know, somebody that has been awake for a week, you know, that's, that's, you're, you're into the land of steep sleep deprivation at that point. And people don't actually act ra- the way they would if they were well rested yeah. or well fed or. It's a good metaphor. Yeah. Um, so the entire purpose of this museum is to remember, preserve, educate, educate on the the past of our of our conflicts. Now, one of the reasons why we talk to veterans, why we try and get their uh, opinions, and why we try and get their stories is so that we might avoid doing things that they had to do mm-hmm. again. So in that case i completely agree that whatever they have to say is something that we really should remember because it's all important in piecing the puzzle together so that we don't make the same mistakes twice or we find different ways to do things because Mm. you just don't want to repeat yourself it gets boring after a while to me so uh i really want to talk about what brings you here as a full-time employee when you uh were here uh, as, a, as a volunteer, you go off as a, to do a job, you come back again, you work with the education department. What leads you to archivist and essentially, if I'm being perfectly honest, the go-to guy who I ask about things that I don't know about? What gets well, you there? It, it, fits, it fits in really easy with my own, I guess, worldview um, of, of doing things and... Uh, it's one of those things where you, I've heard it said you never work a day in your life uh, if you find a job that actually you enjoy. Right. Not quite true. Uh, I mean, there, there are days where it's like you're driving nails with your forehead. But, uh, you know, there, <laughs> there it is. Yeah, I mean, the guys, I, I keep saying every time we go to get a vehicle from uh, across the street that uh, they've got a perfect little sign there that says uh, it's got a bullseye on it and it says bang head here and it's like i want one of those only i want one with a nail because uh, that's what it feels like some days um i think probably it it works well for me because i enjoy what i'm doing by and large uh i'm getting paid for doing it so it's like okay i'm not i'm never going to get rich on this but you know what at least it gives me a reason to get out of bed in the morning and that was what actually doing the volunteering did for me was it got me out of bed in the morning and it kept me going and it got me to the point where i wasn't well 
wasn't feeling sorry for myself. Oh, oh, I, you know, I'm I'm not employed. I'm unemployable. It was um, wasn't the case. It's just that you get to that sort of point where if you go to a number of job interviews and you just you know no 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 no. Well, with this, I was able to actually learn sort of on the job and use the skills that I have already. I mean, uh, just before I came in here, I was dealing with a, uh, one of our uh, measuring tools. Somebody was having trouble with that, so we had to get the, the battery into it and some other things. Um, but I also had a request from one of your colleagues for uh, apparently they missed it by about a foot of wire that was necessary to wire something up. So they called me and I went, yep, I got wire. The frustrating part right now is that when I was asked last week, do you have this? I went, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've got one of those, but do you think I can find it now? No. (laughs) It just, hence the need for the bang head here. And uh, it's just, that's one of those things that it happens. Yeah. Well, you're the guy that everybody knows to call to if they need something hung up on the wall, if they need help with their humidifying detection device. Mm-hmm. I don't I can you told me at the beginning what this what this thing is called in front of me and I still can't remember. And that actually kind of back the this particular instrument back back goes to the um backdates, I guess, to uh, what we were discussing when it come to that uh, bayonet that was in pristine condition. It was right. the, the main reason why the blade itself survived so well was because it was actually protected. Uh, two things that end up happening in you have relative humidity and you have temperature. So based on this is the science part of it. Uh, when the temperature changes, there's a certain amount of suspended or uh, I'm trying to think of the exact word for this, but it's a certain amount of moisture in the air at a certain temperature. When the temperature changes, the amount actually either comes out of saturation or goes into saturation. So it evaporates or it actually starts to condense. And one of the things that is bad in museums is when you get a very rapid change from one to the other. Yes. And it's especially bad with things like paper and wood and that sort of stuff. So you can get everything from it dries out, it, you get it wet, it you get mold, and then it dries out all of a sudden. Well, the mold spores don't disappear. Uh, they're still there, but now because it's been wet, uh, especially with pulp, modern, relatively modern pulp paper, because of the acids that are used in the wood uh, fiber to make them, uh, it tends to leach out. This is the reason why you'll get browning on, uh, on paper and why it'll actually get brittle and just fall apart. Uh, the irony is that when they used to make books 500 years ago, they made them out of animal skins, and they were much more stable once they had actually been tanned properly. And this goes now to the point of preservation of items. A lot of the oldest books that we have, quite simply, were someone went, oh, well, nobody's read this book for like the last 20 years. Let's pull out the last five pages, and we'll take it, scrape it down, turn it sideways and we'll write our new laundry list effectively on it and then years and years later 100 years 200 years later somebody comes along and says oh hang on and they turn it sideways and they then take a, a lamp and uh, there's various new technologies that where you can actually shine a light effectively sideways and you can say oh look there's this a- ancient latin text that 
there were only three copies of, and one of them was in the Alexandra Library, which burnt down, and the other one was in, uh, you know, the Library of the Castle, such and such, which uh, was bombed, uh, and not necessarily bombed in the 20th century, because I can remember on a trip that I took to Heidelberg, standing there looking at the castle of Heidelberg, going, oh, well, that was taken out by the 8th Air Force. No, no, that was when the French were here uh, back in the, I'm trying to think when, 1500s? And they set their cannons up and just took out the uh, the castle. So it's like, oh, so that damage has been there for a little while. So here's something that I would like to that I'd like to touch on. You are an uh, employee of the military museums, where we discuss as far back as probably 1812 is as far back as I do education mm-hmm. programming for kids or anything like that, and. As far back as the artifacts go, it's mostly 1812 era. Some of them from 1700s, not late 1700s. But I feel like your breadth of knowledge goes beyond that to Western civilization in Europe, that sort of thing. Uh, So would that be accurate? Yes, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here shaking my head, which, of course, everybody on the podcast can see me doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, I, the question I would have for you is, as a historian, I, I, I imagine you would consider yourself yes. one. Uh, is there a there have been some great losses of knowledge mm-hmm. in the history of humanity? Other than the burning of Alexandria, uh, the library. Yeah. Um, is there any loss of information in modern history that you could maybe compare that moment to? The problem, actually, I was as you were asking me that uh, question, I was thinking about this. One of the biggest problems that you have when it comes to not Canadian First World War uh, documentation of, of soldiers, it's actually British stuff. Because there was a whole bunch of stuff, uh, like all the documents that we that you can find on the website, the government website, which I can never remember what the number, the name is, but you can actually find full information on individuals. Yeah. Um, you cannot do the same thing with British stuff because, unfortunately, a good piece of that information that was held in paper archives was destroyed in a bombing raid during the Second World War, so 4041. That's a rough approximation of the sort of loss that you'd get, but every time we lose one of our veterans and people don't remember their stories, that is a smaller loss. I mean, it's just as, it can be just as painful because all of that information is now gone. And when you're a kid, you don't necessarily pay attention to, you know, what your parents are saying. But sometimes when you're a kid, you listen to what your grandparents are saying. If you're lucky enough to have a grandparent, a great grandparent, that's even better. But it also depends on how good their memory is uh, and what they're going to talk about. There are things that you find out about secondhand. Um, I had a great—I mentioned this earlier. I had a great I had great uncles that served in the Second World War. I had one who was actually a prisoner of war, and there were things that he would discuss with my uh, his family and my and the extended family. So that my grandfather's specifically my grandfather uh and he really liked uh this uncle really brother-in-law liked his brother-in-law so there were things that until we read the book that he had been interviewed for we didn't know about 
and there were things that he was not going to necessarily discuss with within the family because that was kind of like well you're of german ancestry so i'm going to paint i'm going to paint you the same way but there were grim things about being a prisoner of war there were funny things i mean pretty hysterically funny things uh i was discussing yesterday actually with one of the folks here actually i think it was one of your colleagues um about law things that families don't value and they throw out like literally this 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 happened well that led to the one of the stories that my great uncle had passed on which was there was a german officer in his prisoner of war camp who used to like to stomp his feet uh so he would stand on the uh, on the campground and he would you know stamp his foot into the ground well one day he stamped his foot into the ground right where they had dug a tunnel so he dropped into this tunnel up to about his waist uh you know i mean that's that's pretty funny <laughs> stuff i mean you know uh, we had one, one of the other one, one of our other uh volunteers here for a while uh ernie he had a uh, he had an incident where he was he was captured shortly after um the very famous photograph was taken of the uh, sea force in Ortona having Christmas dinner. And one of the jobs that they did um, as a prisoner of war, you can do this as long as it doesn't materially aid the enemy, you can go out on a work party. Well, he was out on this work party for two days, an overnight, and they were re-bedding a railway track that had been blown up. Well, they decided it was a good idea to rather than ha- really put the sleepers, that's the actual, the rails run on the sleepers, so yeah. that's the wooden bit. Rather than tamping all of them in really well, they would tamp one in five really well and not really do that much. And so the first train tra- a train that went over that made it most of the way along this siding and then f- tipped over. Now, how do you actually not start laughing uh with your your guard standing there going well we have no idea what happened and they had to go yeah we have absolutely no idea what happened there <laughs> um yeah i mean no gee imagine that maybe it's maybe it's the quality of your uh your, your uh, uh wood and uh like uh steel yeah yeah that's what it is it's not that we didn't tamp down the the sleepers really well yeah. and you it's one of those cases of getting up the nose of of the opposition uh, same conversation I was having with uh, one of the they d- decided this is actually covered in the King's Own because the cavalry tanks a lot of them were taken prisoner at uh, Dieppe the Germans decided that they were going to chain uh, they heard that the Canadians or the Americans were chaining German prisoners of war so they decided they would actually get back at uh, the Allies by chaining you know putting manacles on them but being very typically German, they had you, you wore an eye disc or an identity disc that actually had your prisoner of war information on them. And what they did was they had everybody with their shackles so that you, you came out and you got your individual shackles. And it came from a big box. So at the beginning of the day, they would the first guy would come out, he'd show his eye disc, they would find his shackles, they would click them onto him, and off he'd go. And they carried on, and then guy would sh- guy would show up. He'd show his eye disc, and okay. What they were doing is they were going around the back of one of the buildings. They were picking the locks. They were then working the shackles back into the box again. 
it took pretty much, I think they were on the third go around of having everybody. <laughs> and, and, and suddenly it's like, you've been here before. <laughs> uh, and it's, so, of course, any, and it took them all day. And it's just yeah. anything to irritate the opposition. And I mean, those that was are, the job, right? And, and that's the fun. And that's those are one of the, some of the funny stories. Yeah. Uh, and I, the reason why I know some of this stuff is because I was lucky enough to have a great uncle talk to me a little bit about it, or learn it through through various other family members, or actually talk to people like Ernie, and uh, you know, find out this stuff. And probably one of the most poignant moments. I was not actually there at the time to see this, but we had a German prisoner of war and we had Ernie and they were talking to each other and the German guy says, I'm, I'm, ter- I'm, I'm so sorry you had to be a prisoner of war in Germany because, you know, this guy, they did well. And these are things that people don't know. Um, we had a very notorious case of um, two uh, Germans were, uh, who were in a prisoner of war camp killed one of their own people. This is down, I think, in Medicine Hat. They were not exactly happy about being executed for murder uh, under Canadian law. Uh, They wanted to be executed the same way as they were, you know, as a soldier would be, firing squad. No, they were hung. But the irony there, which a lot of people don't realize, is that there was a third uh, individual who was executed at the time. And I don't want to dwell on the gruesome details of it, but suffice it to say that this particular fellow definitely deserved what he did. Um, When you're dealing with a pedophile and a murderer, um, so needless to say, these German officers who thought they were doing the right thing, uh, they didn't much appreciate being executed with a, a pedophile. And... There's a, I, I actually have a connection on that because my family, my mother and my grandparents, lived not very far from where this actually happened. Uh, it was actually, anybody who wants to do the research on this, um, and we didn't know just how grim it was until we actually, my grandmother's neighbor actually uh, was a young constable in the RCMP at the time. It was one of the murders that he actually had investigated. So the details, which were generally kept fairly quiet, we got the gist of them. And these are things that are probably going to end up being lost um, because it's it's not on anybody's radar. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got one more question for you today, and then I'll let you go back to work. (laughs) Mm. Um. I was really hoping you could tell us, because I like to make this a resource for students as well as anybody with an interest in military history and teachers as well, but students who are maybe graduating very soon and uh, have a particular interest in military history or museums in general, museum studies, that sort of thing, how would you give them advice in uh, how to create a career out of a passion? It probably, for for me, it was a lot of luck, actually. I mean, I pretty much have absorbed an awful lot of information in my life uh, because there have just been various things that I've been interested in. We, I've actually, I've had practicum students and I've had volunteers, well, more practicum students than anything, and summer students. 
uh, who have actually gone on to have careers in the museum uh, industry. Um, there's about three of them that I can actually think of uh, just off, off the top of my head. At least three. Uh, those are the only three that really kind of stick out. One actually is employed in a museum, a couple of the smaller museums here in Alberta, and then one that's actually quite large. I think it has to do with just how much passion you have for it. Um, it helps if you actually can, if possible, volunteer or you know get a summer job uh, in a museum. It also the trickiest bit seems to be finding the perfect match for what you know, what you're interested in, what you're willing to learn more about. To this day, I mean, I'm starting uh, an online course in uh, at the end of this month, and so I mean, I've done a university degree, I've done a professional specialization certificate at another university. I've completed the uh, Alberta Museums Association uh, courses, so I have the diploma for that. And uh, I've also been taking other courses on various things related directly to um, museum, how museums work. A lot of it has to do with how pr uh, with actual practical application. Right. Um, as you know, whenever we've been dealing with things, uh, sometimes it isn't. You have to let people kind of run with what they want or what they need to be able, what needs to happen. It isn't necessarily going to work out the way that you kind of wanted it to happen. Um, there are things that I've, somebody has said, well, we want to do this. And it's like, um, you know what, that's not practical. Um, I've literally had to say on occasion, um, when they've said, why are you doing something like that? I'm thinking more of when we've been setting up exhibitions. It's like, the reason why we're doing it that way is because if we don't do it this way, a wall's going to fall over and somebody's going to die. Yeah. And it, when, once you use the health and safety aspect, people will kind of go, oh, ah. If you can manage to volunteer, by all means, volunteer. Okay. It, it doesn't necessarily work that way uh, all the time for people. I mean... As I said, I started out as a volunteer and just actually listen to what people are saying. Don't judge what's being said because, uh, you know, if somebody says something that's a bit off color or they, you don't necessarily agree with, say, something that they did in the past. Um, it, you really can't change the past as such, but you can certainly learn from it. And learning from the past is probably the reason why we have a past because it gives you a way of dealing with what's happening right now and that then has an effect on the future. Now that sounds very sort of profound and that sort of stuff, but it, it's also very true. Uh, if you can't, if you're interested in it, bear in mind it's a very rarefied um, existence to some extent too. I mean, it's, there's a lot of interlinking between, say, the museums that we have here in Alberta or British Columbia or Western Canada, and also between the military museums across the country. Yeah. Uh, we're, I, I like to think of it as where if you draw three circles and they all overlap, we're kind of in the center of that with all of these little radiating uh, aspects coming out from it. And it, it happens. I mean, I've had people who I've met at, say, the AMA conference who will actually, uh, you know, contact me over something. Uh, we 
try not to panic. Um, yeah, uh, trust me, I've, I've, I've watched a, enough of this, like, okay, that's a really good imitation of a wet hen, but, you know, it's not really serving any purpose. Uh, there are museum courses that you can take. Uh, if you have, if you think you have an interest in it, then I'd say by all means, explore doing it that, you know, explore that. Because the worst thing that can happen is you go, I, I am going to go into this particular profession. Nearly everybody that I know, uh, who are with the AMA, we do have a, uh, our, I better qualify that because there's like three or four acronyms for that, but the uh, Alberta Museums Association, nearly every one of us started out doing something different than what we actually are doing now. Um, so I think it has a lot, it has to do a lot with passion, but it probably has more, it, that's the big thing. If you have a little bit of knowledge, that's even better. Last week, they just finished doing um, the one course that the AMA offers that in nearly every other course, someone will ask a question. I'll be like, yeah, that's covered in uh, collections management. Uh, preventative conservation. Well, that's actually covered in collections management. The reason why I, I kind of hesitate there for a sec is because one of the courses that I took was preventative conservation, and we got discussing uh military uh, uniforms and one of the museums had this uniform they were going through the pockets which is an interesting experience sometimes because you'd be surprised the stuff you find in them and they reached in and they pulled out a condom and they went okay we know who this particular individual is we don't really I mean like yeah condom that's well I pretty much put my hand up and said okay bear in mind I'm not saying that the reason why he had it in his pocket wasn't the reason why you would normally have a condom, but condoms can be used for other things. Um, without getting into too many details, you can use them for waterproofing. Prisoners of war used to use them for hiding contraband. Um, it's you, it, you can use them for, well, basically anything that you want to keep the insides inside and the outsides outside. And, uh, but it was, it was an interesting experience actually with this particular one, because I, I pretty much said, well, you know, bear this in mind. I'm not saying he wasn't, he didn't have it for the, the original reason, but you know, there are other things you can do. And it's like, well, yeah. So sometimes what you're seeing isn't necessarily what you're, you're getting. All right. Um, well, Walter, I have, uh, I know I said I, that was my last question, but I just wanted to wrap up by saying, hey, thank you so much for joining me oh, and uh, chatting with me for this, uh, for this brief little moment here. And uh, lastly, is there anything coming up at the museums that you think uh, the general public should know about or that you want people to come out to? Actually, we've got something going on right now that is of actual very his profound historical significance. And oh, it's I'm glad the, I asked. It's it's in the PPCLI uh, mm -hmm. gallery. They have uh, Princess Patricia's wedding dress. More importantly, they have the wedding veil that she wore. Now, this is where my fairly broad uh, historical indoctrination has come in. Uh, very useful. That goes back to the time frame of the Regency period. So we're talking Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. Oh, really? The veil was actually uh, Princess Charlotte's. Princess Charlotte was the daughter of George IV, well, when he was the Prince Regent, 
And uh, so actually we're talking about something that goes back to the era of Waterloo over 200 years ago. Oh, wow. So it's, it's you know, the, the, the wedding dress. And it, here's the thing, a wedding dress in a military museum. Really? Yes, really. It's one of those, there's all these quirky little stories. Like if you talk to any, well, I'll, I'll deal with the PPCLI, uh, veterans who knew uh, the Princess Patricia, who was actually uh, named by the original uh, Princess Patricia to take take on her role. There's a lot of really good stories that came from from her, and she would put on the uniform and stomp around in the muddy fields and go out and see the troops. Uh, these are things that's like, oh, well, wow, wouldn't have thought that necessarily would be the case, but okay, fine and dandy, um, and. In, the, in her particular case, she actually was one of the sort of out there doing things. Um, she lost her, I'm trying to remember, she certainly lost her father to a bomb, um, which was rather sad. And she ended up, they ended up actually picking bits of boat out of her. So it was, um, yeah, it was a boat bomb uh, planted by the IRA. Uh, and uh, they lost a couple of other, lost a couple of family members actually to direct sort of terrorist action. Um, but it's like anything else. There are six. They, they say there's six degrees of separation between people. Uh, you know, any any two people who don't necessarily know each other. Well, yeah, you sometimes find that it isn't six degrees. It's only maybe two, or sometimes one. Yeah, which is uh, kind of interesting, but. It's like everything else. Our, our words live after we do. I mean, especially when, you, when you're talking about something that somebody's written down. It's the one way, I was actually thinking about this the other day, but it's the one way where you can actually trans, take knowledge from one generation and skip two or three generations maybe and still preserve that knowledge rather than it just being hand to mouth, you know, father to son, daughter to mother, you know, the children to parents and then grandparents type thing and that's pretty much what we're trying to do here is yeah. we're trying to keep that whole thing going to preserve some of the stuff and as as you said earlier hopefully we'll learn from our past mistakes and not make the same mistakes again um, that being said though there are times where you kind of look at certain things and go uh, you know, I probably would have worked a lot better if when I used to do the um, hands-on and we talked about the, the Brody helmet, the First World War British Commonwealth helmet. The irony there is that that helmet doesn't look a lot different from the same type of helmet that would have been wore on pretty much the same battlefield with a separation of 400 years. Uh, it wasn't it's not too much different. The Brody helmet is not too much different from the Kettle helmet that would have been worn at the time of Cressy or Agincourt in the same area of France. And oh my gosh, yes, I never even thought yeah, about that. Like, like, <laughs> I mean, and, and that's the thing. Places like the Somme have been fought over. I mean, I'm pretty sure that you had, well, 
this is a very antiquated term, but I'm pretty sure you had cavemen throwing rocks at each other in the same spot. I mean, they were still pulling rocks out of, out of the Somme River, throwing rocks at each other. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And that's something that people sometimes don't think about is the fact that the same places are being fought over at the same time. We did a, there's an exhibition that was done about uh, seven or eight years ago now, which was colloquially termed Rugs and Thugs. It was a, uh, an, a collaboration between the Nickel Arts Museum and the PPCLI. And the something that people didn't really realize, I don't think, was that there was a medal, a single medal that was on display right at the very beginning of it. And it was for Afghanistan. It was one of their original PPCLI members because they were recruited from ex-soldiers. He had fought in Afghanistan in the late 1800s in the British Army. And now in, I think it was approximately 2006, so it might have been a little longer ago than that. But So they had a Patricia who was over fighting in Afghanistan, and then the Patricias were over fighting in Afghanistan. So there are areas of the world that tend to get it, end up getting fought over simply because they're very strategic. Yeah. And it's like, okay, great, guys. You know, we probably could have solved the problem there if we'd have just kind of thought this through and realized that, you know, 100-odd years ago that, yeah, let's try not, not to make the same mistakes. <sighs> We're not very good at that. No. Um, and with that, uh, I'll, I'll wrap this up. And uh, thanks once again, Walter, for your time. And uh, I would love to have you back on the podcast and chat again sometime soon. Uh, so thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. All right. I'll talk to again. Work, 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 work. <laughs> thank you again for listening to the Military Museums podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. And, of course, you can also listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your ear content. Now, if you have a comment or question, as always, you can email the show at themilitarymuseumspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.